Before we start up this week's episode, we have a special announcement. Now, James Bond may get his suits tailor-made on Savile Row, but if you want the next best thing, check out our new merch store over at redbubble.com. Just search for Spy Hards or hit the link in the show notes. You'll find everything a suave spy needs from hats and hoodies to pillows and phone cases. Plus, you can grab our first ever t-shirt depicting the superstar of Thunderball himself having the existential crisis and pondering the eternal question, what does Vargas do? So show support for the show and help give Vargas the spotlight he truly deserves. But without further ado, Cam, roll the episode. Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I believe we have someone who could command our (laughs) attention this week. Indeed we do. We have Bill Koenig joining us, who is the Master-in-Chief at the Spy Command. Bill, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Now, I mean, we've, we've been talking uh, over social media for over a year now, Bill, so we're, we're glad to finally have you on the show. And I think we picked a really fun film to talk about, we'll get to in a bit. But I think, let's introduce the audience to you if, if they don't know you. So, I mean, tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about the Spy Command. Well, the Spy Command's a blog. It's been uh, been around since 2008. It was spun off from a former website called Her Majesty's Secret Servant. Uh, originally, the blog was a way for HMSS to have a presence between issues because it, you know it was like a an e magazine, as the founders called it. Uh, but eventually, all good things come to an end, and as it wound down, the the blog continued on. And I mean, it, it, I changed the name some years ago, uh, you know, to, you know, kind of, you know, HMSS was gone. So I took HMSS out of the name, but it's in the URL still. So it's uh, HMSSWebblog.wordpress.com. But uh, anyway, but, uh, you know, it, it's pretty Bond heavy, but I get into other uh, spy things. And uh, what intrigued me when we talked about we'll get to it you know the movie we're going to discuss is actually something a little out of my comfort zone although i did see it back in the day when it was first on first in theater so yeah it's a a change of pace i'm looking forward to well i'm curious you know you refer to seeing this the movie we're going to talk about today back in the day but i'm curious what started your interest in the spy genre maybe going back to childhood or you know how did it start Back to childhood, uh, what first got me hooked into the uh, spy genre was uh, the Man from Uncle television series, and um, which of course had an Ian Fleming connection. But uh, and then what got me into Bond was actually Uncle because in the second season of Uncle they preempted the show for this TV special, The Incredible World of James Bond, which was really well done. It it 
uh, it had this uh, character actor as the narrator, a guy named Alexander Scorby, and he had he had one of these like voice of God kind of things. You know, he was like a great narrator. He did he did other you know narration voice work on other things as well, um, and so and then you know that was of course in the middle of the whole spy craze. You had on TV, you know, you had I Spy, you had Get Smart, you had The Wild Wild West. Then, you know, Mission Impossible. Um, in movies, you had Matt Helm, although I didn't really see Matt Helm until it was on TV. Um, in Like Flint, um, you know, so it was like, you know, so, so, so I'm a creature of the spy craze, you could say. Well, I'm curious, you know, you started with the Man From U.N.C.L.E. show. I just have to check in because we covered that movie early on. Did you ever see the film version of The Man From U.N.C.L.E.? Oh, yes. And what did you think? Well, it's not the movie I would have made, but it gave me enough uncle that I was okay with it. But I know some of my fellow uncle fans, some liked it and some really did not like it. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, for, for original fans who didn't like it, they did not like the lack of the secret headquarters, the lack of the, you know, the, the gadgets and you know, the pen communicators and all that. They just, they, they, they felt that was like too much of the show. I thought they kind of like stripped it down to the essence of the characters. They, now they took some liberties with those characters. They, you know, changed the backstories. Not that the TV show gave you a whole lot of the backstory, but it did give you some and, you know, like Solo being a thief, uh, that's an invention of the movie makers. You know, that, that didn't happen on the TV show. And as far as I know, Ilya was not a psychotic uh, <laughs> on the TV show. Um, but I enjoyed it enough. Um, you know, it was pretty clear, you know, they, it was pretty clear who, what the secret organization was, but they didn't want to use the name Thrush. And actually, in the, in the backstory of the show, they had a devil of a time trying to come up with the name because it was originally Thrush, and then they changed it to Wasp. Uh, and there's a movie version of the pilot where you can tell they've dubbed out Thrush and put in Wasp. Uh, but and 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 at one point, one point they were going to call it Maggot. Um, <laughs> I've got a script. It's like a first draft script of an early episode where, where you know, they, you know, the, the organization's called Maggot. That would have been a hell of a thing to have. Uh, I think they talked themselves out of using Wasp because Jerry Anderson was coming out with uh, Stingray. And the organization that the Stingray was part of was uh, the World Aquatic Security Patrol, I think. So they, you know, so... I think there were like people on the production team that didn't like Wasp anyway, and they kind of used that as an excuse to torpedo that name, and so it ends. So they ended up going back to Thrush in the in the end. So we, we all end up back in Thrush at the end. To be fair, I swear. Mm. 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 Well, I think what we'll do is spin off from Thrush, and uh, maybe talk about what we're doing this week. Sounds good. Yes. Yes, we are tackling the 1976 film, the World War II espionage thriller, The Eagle Has Landed, directed by John Sturges. I was about to say, and, and you know, I should have looked this up before we started. Um, I wonder if this was like, this had to be like one of Sturges' last films. Oh, 
We'll have a whole story about that. Yes. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, because at one point he was also well, yeah, he had a falling out with Steve McQueen over the movie Lamar, for example. So mm. okay, but we'll I'll, I'll wait for that. But uh, it sounds like Cam has something exciting planned for us. So uh, okay, I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> yeah, this story. Yeah. So I, I'll get my spiel out of the way, I suppose. Then um, the Letterbox.com synopsis: The Eagle has landed. The daring World War II plot that changed the course of history. When the Nazi High Command learns in late 1943 that Winston Churchill will be spending time at a country estate in Norfolk. Can remember that? Norfolk. It hatches, <laughs> it hatches an audacious scheme to kidnap the Prime Minister and spirit him to Germany for enforced negotiations with Hitler. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's a lot of the old movies when you do these like plot synopsis, it's like the most basic thing ever. That one actually gets some of the actual background of the film. Yeah, not bad. It's like close to being too long, but not quite. But not quite there. Like it's just it's on that borderline. One more line, that would have been yeah, I would have dismissed yeah. it. Hmm. I would have thrown up my computer and walked out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, what we like to do here at this point is talk about our original experiences with the film. I think, Bill, you should go first because you saw it in theatres. I think you're the, the prime candidate to tell us what you thought about it before you revisited it for this podcast. So did you have any fleeting memories of seeing it or just from it bumbling around on you and video store shelves? Um, I remember most, you know what, I never, until I rewatched it recently to prep for the podcast, I had not seen it since that theatre showing. And I remembered, you know, who, the character I actually remembered the best was Donald Sutherland as uh, uh, Devlin, the Irish uh, guy who's recruited to the plot. Um, I mean, Sutherland's always colorful in just about anything he does. And, and he, yeah, so I, I definitely remembered him. And I also remembered, okay, so you've got the lead characters, Michael Caine, as a German. Well, he's English. <laughs> English educated German, but uh, I, I I do remember thinking it was kind of weird they're having Michael Caine play a German, but eh, whatever. Um, but he, I mean, he's fine. He's fine. Um, and I remember that Tom Mankiewicz had had written it, and so this was after his run of three credited uh, Bond pictures. Now he did two more uncredited, but. Yeah, and, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of... So, so anyway, so Mankiewicz was a name I recognized and, and watched for. And so when I saw, you know, he was the writer, I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll watch. And you got Robert Duvall, you know, the Godfather had just been on just a few, you know, years earlier. So, I mean, you know, Duvall's pretty well known. And so it seemed to have a pretty interesting cast. So that's, you know, all of that added up to me, you know, deciding to see the film. And were you a fan, you know, when you walked out of the uh, theater back in 1976 or 77, were you a fan of the movie? Um, yeah, I thought it was solid. It was like, okay, I'm I, I thinking, okay, I know they can't kill Churchill. And then they appear to kill Churchill. Oh. And so I was like briefly uh, taken back. And then it's like, oh, it's a double. Of course it's a double. Um, now that's back in the days... You know, since since then, you know, Tarantino just goes ahead and rewrites history. Mm -hmm. So, so but back then, you knew it couldn't. You know, you knew Churchill couldn't get killed uh, or kidnapped. So, you know, how's this? You know, how's this going to end? 
Right. Well, I, I, I've, I'll, I'll chuck my two cents in. I had no idea that this film existed until it came up on our list of films. So my background is I didn't have any. Uh, Cam, what about you? Yeah, I went on a run of World War II movies many years ago. I cited this when we did Where Eagles Dare. Uh, I went on this whole, you know, tracking down every Men on a Mission movie I could find. This was one of them. I recall I got it in a bargain bin somewhere and watched it. And it wasn't one of my favorites at the time because I was watching, you know, The Great Escape, Dirty Dozen, some of the ones that maybe have a little more name value now. Uh, Whereas this one... I remember struggling a little more with like the fictional aspects of it. Uh, and a lot of those movies are fictionalized. So I don't know why this one jutted out more so, but I think it just felt a little more kind of cartoony to me than some of the other ones I was watching and really enjoying. Is it the fact that it's trying to alter history, even though it turns out that it isn't trying to alter history? Is that the bit that sort of bumped you? I think it was that, but also the um, some of the... A lot of those movies felt a little more believable to me than like Michael Caine embarking on a one-man mission to capture, you know, Churchill. Things like that just felt a little more like comic book than something that was more grounded in a realistic world. <laughs> so weird. I, I always find this far more approachable and believable than um, Where Eagles Dare. Yeah, well, that one's pretty cartoony as well, <laughs> to be fair. That's like just that's just like a straight-ahead, full-on crazy action movie, whereas this one... We'll talk about it, but it definitely takes its time to establish things, and it feels like it wants to root itself more in a real world, especially opening with like newsreel footage. Yeah, and and um, I mentioned earlier that I remembered uh, Donald Sutherland as Devlin, and re- rewatching it recently, actually, my favorite scene actually had had no action whatsoever. It was the scene where Robert Duvall, as the German officer, is recruiting Devlin. And now, years earlier, those two had acted together in the movie version of MASH, directed by uh, yeah, Robert Altman. Uh, yeah. Robert Altman. So, so they had some history together, and it's always amusing when you know you see a couple actors who are pretty good, and you give them some props because, like, uh, Robert Duvall's got a eye patch, he's got a bad hand, he's talking in a faint german accent he's he 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 decided to underdo the the german accent which was probably a good decision but and then uh sutherland is devlin you know for the audience you know devlin's this irish guy hates the british and so he has been recruited into this german plot and so uh sutherland's hair is colored kind of a dark red and he's talking in an irish accent and uh and there's this funny bit where um, Robert Duvall offers uh, Donald Sutherland a, c- a cigarette and he lights it and he goes, <laughs> coughs. He says, what is that? And it turns out it's a Russian cigarette. You know, the Robert Duvall character had, had gotten to like them uh, during um, when he was on the, on the Eastern Front, and which I guess explains the eye patch and the bad hand. And, uh, and then he begins, anyway, he, he manages to hook Devlin the Sutherland character, uh, give me another one of those Bolshevik firecrackers. <laughs> it was just, so just in terms of, you know, two pros acting off one another, I, I, I thought it was a very entertaining scene. And again, it's a dialogue scene. It's, it's you know, but yeah, I, I liked it. Well, I mean, already your Irish accent was more believable than Donald Sutherland. So yeah, thank you for that, Bill. I appreciate that. As uh, someone that's quite a lot closer than potentially both of you are to Ireland. 
Um, but I think before we dig into our thoughts on it now, as we've all revisited it for the podcast, Cam, could you bless us all here with some information on how this film came to be? Indeed I can. So this movie is based on a novel by Jack Higgins. Um, the actual name of the author is Henry Patterson. He uses the alter name um, Jack Higgins. Uh, he was a British author and is a British author. He's 92 years old. He's still kicking, cranking out work. Uh, he wrote a lot of thrillers and espionage novels. And the book Eagle Has Landed sold 50 million copies back in the day. And, you know, Paramount purchased the rights to it in 1974 before it was released. So then I was like, wait, why did Paramount leap on this book from this very prolific thriller author? What was it about this one? And from what I could track down, they must have had an eye on him because in 1972, a movie had been made of one of his novels called The Wrath of God, starring Robert Mitchum, and another one in 67 called The Violent Enemy with Tom Bell. These are not movies that are well-remembered, but I think probably at the time he was just kind of one of those guys whose work had been adapted a couple times, and so there was a certain eye on him. My guess is... He sells the concept of this one. Paramount probably jumps for it. It's a pretty easy movie to sum up the concept in like a sentence or two. And I think it would probably fly pretty well with a boardroom. So they bring in writer Tom Mankiewicz, who, as um, you know, Bill had said, had worked on a few Bond films. He'd done Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. And, um, and so he, he jumped over to this from those Bond films. And... People may not know this, but Tom Mankiewicz was like Hollywood royalty. His uh, father was Joseph Mankiewicz, who was one of the great directors of the old days. He'd done All About Eve and the Cleopatra film with Elizabeth Taylor. And he was also the nephew of Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote Citizen Kane. So Tom Mankiewicz was like a pretty big name at this point in time and would go on to do things like um, the Christopher Reeve Superman film and a lot of other work. Now, John Sturgis who we mentioned, was brought in to direct this film. He's a legend. He's done The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, Bad Day at Black Rock, Gunfight at the OK Corral. He is considered one of the great, like, red-blooded action-adventure directors. And so he was a perfect fit for this movie. Now, this was his final film. And according to Michael Caine's biography, What's It All About? Um, John Sturges showed up, and he was just burnt out on directing. He'd done 40 movies, and he told Kane he was only there because he wanted to make money to go fishing. And I guess fishing was expensive <laughs> to go to Baja or something to go fishing, I guess. I don't know. But Sturgis was basically just like, I just, I just want my money to go fishing, guys. Just please, please. <laughs> so Maybe he's fishing with dynamite or something and he has to, you know, buy dynamite. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to reuse that, I guess, yeah. like hooks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and... Uh... Two years earlier, he had directed a cop movie with John mm. Wayne called McHugh. Not great. Um, <laughs> not yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I saw that in the theater, too. <laughs> yeah, that sort of uh, followed the Dirty Harry craze, and it's basically John Wayne being uh, Dirty Harry. Uh, it's got its novelty. Yeah. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Sturges shot the movie and bailed before there was any post-production or editing. He was just like, I'm out. I got to hit the water, guys. <laughs> so The trout wait for no man. Yes. <laughs> I got my fishing money. <laughs> so um, they basically, uh, Mankiewicz has credited the editor, Anne V. Coates, who had done Lawrence of Arabia. She won an Oscar for that. She'd done Murder on the Orient Express. She stepped in and basically put the whole movie together. And so they give her a lot of the credit for whatever the final form is, whatever you think of it. 
she was the one that very much shaped it without John Sturgis being there to look at it. And just interestingly, she passed away very recently. And actually her final film that she edited was Fifty Shades of Grey. So those trivia people out there, the editor of Lawrence of Arabia did Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, no. Yeah, and she was also instrumental in the restoration of uh, Lawrence of Arabia as well. Mm -hmm. That took place in the, uh, well, in the late 80s. And uh, I mean, I mean, another I mean, she was like a consultant for the restoration. And because uh, I remember in particular, there was this one shot. David Lean was sure it was lost. It was the early in the film when Lawrence has that motorcycle accident. There's that shot of his goggles in the tree. Yeah. And and David Lean was sure it was lost. And she said, no, I think we can find it. And she did. And yeah, so she was like I said, she was a key figure in the restoration of that movie that's helped, you know, help it uh, be discovered by new audiences. I have a question. This editor for this film, does she direct Fifty Shades of Grey or does she edit Fifty Shades of Grey? Edited. Yeah, she was a lifelong uh, editor. Uh, you, you sometimes hear about ones that become directors. It happens in the Bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish I had a joke for that about Fifty Shades of Grey, but hey, it made a ton of money, so good for her. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, an editor, you take the jobs, and I think that's an interesting one. She also edited Masters of the Universe. Wow. So, like, this is someone with, like, a very diverse filmography in terms of the projects she worked on. And, uh, you know, I watched Lawrence of Arabia again not too long ago, actually, maybe, like, three months ago on Blu-ray. Man, it holds up. Looks, It's one of the most beautiful Blu-rays I've ever seen. You know, it looks better than a lot of 4Ks I buy. So uh, I recommend that, you know, big set that came out not so long ago. But um, Michael Caine had a certain amount of hard feelings about John Sturgis's effort on this movie. He has a quote from his book. He says, I still get angry when I think of what it could have been with the right director. We had committed the old European sin of being impressed by someone just because he came from Hollywood. So it's kind of funny because when I looked up that this movie was John Sturgis's last before doing the research, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't realize it was sort of under... Um, not the best of situations and uh, not the best legacy to leave on your working environment. <laughs> and then another key uh, contributor to the film was uh, Lalo Schifrin doing the mm-hmm. music. And, you know, if I, I don't know how it ranks in terms of the quality of his, you know, filmography, but I mean, it's solid. It's, 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 I think it's like one of the highlights of the film. There's like a whistling piece he plays you know when donald sutherland's going to the woods i think pieces like that really jump out i don't know if there's like a lot of strong themes running through it but i thought a number of incidental moments are actually really effective and thanks to him um another aspect to talk about with this production was actually the role of devlin played by donald sutherland um it was actually a pretty tricky one to cast michael kane was who they wanted but he refused to do it because he didn't want to play a member of the ira so then they hired richard harris and Richard Harris, very, you know, acclaimed, established actor. But he had to drop out after he stirred up controversy by attending a fundraiser for the provisional IRA in the U.S. And so it was like, oh, okay, uh, I better step out of this one. And so they hired Donald Sutherland, who's Canadian. So safe choice. <laughs> it's, it's weird to hear the IRA just being mentioned at, at wartime. I, I know they were around. I know this this is a factually correct thing. I just... In my mind, from my school uh, history lessons in school, I just don't think of it, the IRA as being around then. It's more of like a seventies, eighties thing. But uh, it was mm-hmm. just quite weird hearing all of this in this film. But uh, I, apart from his accent, uh, which I had trouble with, I think Donald uh, Donald Sutherland did a good job. 
See, to my ears, it was flawless. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm taken home to Ireland. It just makes sense now. It's, <laughs> it's like I've been transported to the Greenland. I'm frolicking through the fields. <laughs> I'm in Dublin right now. I'm having a pint of Guinness. Yeah, perfect. Oh, you, oh, you laddies. Oh, sarcasm is dripping off your voice. He was Irish. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's basically what he did was put O-I in front of I-words. That's basically how he got it across. <laughs> but uh, a couple other little things I'll note was um, apparently the New York Times announced that David Bowie would show up as a Nazi character in this film if scheduling could be worked out. I could not find anything else except for this New York Times report. New York Times is pretty legit, so I don't know where this came from, but obviously David Bowie is not in the finished film. So, weird. Uh, the other thing I'll note is that this movie was shot during a famously hot summer in uh, in Britain, and the cast suffered a lot. So, I, I can't imagine what the vibe was like if you've got actors just dying in these heavy outfits in the sun and a director who's like looking at fishing catalogs. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and because uh, Michael Caine and his men at one point, they're wearing two uniforms. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got their German uniforms on underneath with these Polish uniforms over them. So you're running around with two uniforms on when it's really hot. That's, Hang on. That's I've got a tiny violin around here somewhere for all these really rich actors being paid to act in, in, in tight uniforms. Sorry. Hang on. Uh, I've lost it. Sorry, guys. It's gone. <laughs> well, 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 well. The men were probably being paid scale, uh, as as opposed as opposed to Michael Caine. Yeah, very, very fair point, Bill. <laughs> so this movie is listed as a 1976 film. Wherever you look it up on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, that's only because it opened in um, Finland and Sweden in 1976. It actually opened everywhere else in 1977. It was a January release. So I'm using the box office for 1977 because that's really where its money is coming in. So um, its budget was $6 million and it's tough to track down an exact number for this film. It's not one that a lot of people put a lot of effort into um, chronicling the box office performance of The Eagle Has Landed. But the number I could find... Or directing. Or, <laughs> oh yeah, or uh, the number I could find was $13.6 million. And I did find quotes of people saying it was quite profitable. So... You know, that's over double its budget. That makes about sense to me. Um, it wasn't a phenomenon, but it did well. The top three for 1977. I'm going to let you guys guess what number one was. I think it's really obvious. Isn't that? Well, Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Star Wars. And uh, number two was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And number three was Saturday Night Fever. And I'll also note number four was The Spy Who Loved Me. So that's a pretty solid number, you know, top four there. All four movies that people continue to watch today, which is sometimes not the case. I remember, Scott, when we did a movie from the 60s and like the number one or two movie of the year was a movie called Hawaii that like has disappeared from time. You know, you look it up, it's out there, but no one talks about Hawaii anymore. Oh, it was based on a James Mishner novel. And uh, was it Julie Andrews is in it? Yeah. And Mac, uh, Max von Sydow, I think, too. Okay. But I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, to be fair, there was one episode where you told me that there was one of the top three films was a, a docudrama about a hospital or something like that. Or No, there was or, the one about venereal disease. That's what it yes, was. Yes. <laughs> Weird. I, I, mean, I think... 
I think it was in the 40s, to be fair. Like, people yeah. went to the cinema for different things back then, but uh, I, I'll still never quite get over that. Yeah, yeah. The venereal disease. Back to thrush, everyone. Back to thrush. <laughs> and uh, just my final note, um, in the wake of, you know, this movie comes out, uh, about 15 years later, Higgins actually wrote a sequel novel called The Eagle Has Flown in 1991 that picked up with the character played by Michael Caine. So they revealed that he'd actually survived and had a whole other adventure with him. So that kind of ties up the behind the scenes on The Eagle Has Landed. Hmm. Well, it sounds like we have uh, prepared for takeoff. And I think now we should take flight as an eagle would. Bill, you're our guest. You've revisited for the podcast, you know, what, 76? What's this? 40 odd years since watching it the first time. What do you think of it now? Well, it, it, you know, the tone tends to vary a lot. And you have scenes that are, you know, fairly dramatic. But you also have mixed with scenes that are pretty comedic, or at least they're intended to be comedic. And one of the examples of the latter is you know, you've got Larry Hagman running around as a kind of stuffy, not very bright American officer. Um, you know, it's like it was almost kind of like, what's he even doing there? It, I mean, it, it kind of detracted from the main plot. I, you know, it, it's. Um, you know, at this point, Hagman Hagman was best known as the guy who used to be on I Dream of Jeannie. Hmm. He, you know, he was a few years away from you know going, you know, doing Dallas and having his career revival. So I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't think he ever lacked for work, but you know, he wasn't you know doing real great, uh, you know, stardom wise. Um, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's just a weird presence. But you know, that's I kind of expect that with a Mankiewicz script, mm -hmm. because Mankiewicz likes to drop in these characters, um, well, like, you know, J.W. Pepper in the Bond films. Yeah. Um, he, I, w I wouldn't quite put him as as over the top as as that, but you know, he's you know trending in that direction. Um, in some ways, Michael Caine, to me, almost gets lost. And maybe it's the way the film's edited because we don't really see him for a long time because we, we, we really deal with kind of Robert Duvall at the beginning of the film. And for those who haven't seen it, basically Hitler's come up with this wacky scheme and, and Robert Duvall has been charged with doing a feasibility study of it. And then, but the but the thing is, from the more Duval gets into it, the more he thinks, "Hey, this could work." In fact, I think we should do this. And then, you know, to the point where his immediate superior says, "Quiet, don't do that." <laughs> um, we we're just doing that to humor him. No. So yeah, so you know, I didn't time it, but I mean, Michael Caine does not not show up for about what twenty minutes at least, something like that. It's about that. Then he disappears again for another twenty minutes before he comes back into the film. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, because he had tried to save a fleeing uh, Jewish girl who ended up getting shot anyway, and so he and his men are being court martialed and so they're in the stockade, you know, for <laughs> for twenty minutes or so while while the plot uh continues. Um so that's you know that's weird. It's you know it's like for for a guy who's like got top billing, he seemed remarkably underutilized. Um, and and I don't know if I don't know if that's a result of uh, the stuff about John Sturgis, you know, having one eye to you know to with to his fishing rod, or uh, 
I don't know. It, it, it's, just, it's just strange. But like, as an overall thing, are you a fan of this film, would you say? Would, is this something you would revisit again after going back to it now? Not necessarily, or it might be it might be a while. You know, I, well, it's obviously not going to be another forty years before I do it. But um, <laughs> it's it's not something I'm going to rush back into. Put it that way. Um, but I mean, there's some things to recommend it, though. I mean, we talked about the editing, we talked about the music, and you know, it's got a good cast. It's it's you know, like I said, I, I kind of wish uh, Michael Caine had been utilized a little more, but mm-hmm. you know. That's how it goes. What about you, Cam? Obviously, you've watched it, I guess, twice now in your life. Uh, did it improve on the second viewing? In some ways, yes, it actually did. The first time, I, I really did just kind of turn it off and be like, ah, like I'm not going to think about this one again. And I think I actually gave away or you know, sent off the DVD to the Salvation Army or something like that. So unfortunately, I wish I'd hung on to it because I could have watched it last night instead of paying like $5 to uh, you know, <laughs> Apple movies. It would have actually helped me out. But um I found this time, it's this is a strange movie, and I think it's one that in some ways has aged quite poorly in comparison to some of the other movies we've done. Like when we did um, Where Eagles Dare, that was uh, an older film that felt really propulsive. This one, there's a lot of shoe leather. It's 40 minutes before the mission really even starts. It's 40 minutes basically of planning and characters giving exposition. It's a movie that I found was constantly trying to lose my attention. And there was just enough there that I actually was able to follow along and actually stay interested. Like it didn't lose me. I never got bored, but it was one that I was very aware in the back of my head. Like a lot of this would be cut down in a newer movie. Like it just feels pacing wise inferior to a lot of the other movies, even of that era, you know, the great escape really moves at a pretty good clip. Um, Eagles dare moves at a pretty good clip, but dirty dozen moves really well. This one is just kind of not as, efficient as those are but it has enough in terms of set pieces in terms of just memorable moments for some reason i really recalled the girl falling in like the aqueduct for some reason that is what was one of my most lingering memories was of this movie um but it's it's a movie of kind of moments it's one that when you know i finish it i go this is not one of the all-time great world war ii thrillers but there's things i think that are interesting to talk about. And it was a movie that when I finished it, I had a ton of notes and I said, oh, this is actually something that genuinely will lead to some good conversation. So it has value. It's kind of a strange beast. And one that when we talk about the drama, a lot of it feels inert and it becomes more of a passive experience, but one I didn't find unpleasant. The um, part of it, the beginning, they get caught up in the whole uh, weirdness of, of, the Nazi regime in that, okay, so Robert Duvall's been charged with doing the feasibility study, as I say, and then he gets caught up with it like he thinks he can do it, but like the official apparatus does not want to uh, to follow through, but, you know, Him- Himmler, played by, uh, played by Donald Pleasance, you know, hmm. real buggy eyes, um, <laughs> uh, he likes the idea, but so, but they have to set it up where it's like, it's not an officially sanctioned operation, although Duval's given this letter, okay, you know, that it is, but then later the letter got torn up and he gets executed. But um, so you have all that kind of stuff going on that kind of, you know, you don't get to that. That's part of the reason why you don't get to the main mission is you're establishing all this, 
all this other stuff. And then the first time we see Michael Caine, we have to establish he's a good German, or at least he's a <laughs> he's an honorable German in the sense that you know he he's he's not for this you know not for the Holocaust or anything like that. The fact he tried to help out that uh, that young woman, uh, you know, and then gets you know court-martialed for it. Um, but yeah, it, it it is odd and. Yeah, and, and and also I forget how many men Michael Caine had with him, but it's not very many, and they keep getting picked off. Like you know, the one guy uh, died trying saving the girl at the uh, with the water thing. Um, Is it an aqueduct? I called it an aqueduct, but I didn't know another term to even use for it. Like it's it's a it's a water wheel. We would call it or something like that. It's used to like you know they use it in like all types of places in the UK. You find them all over the place still. Um, but yeah, water wheel is what I would say. Well, what's the ditch around it called? Because I like the water wheel is the physical structure, right? But like it, it's like this like raging body of water around the house. Like, is there a term for that? Well, that's only created. That's only created by the water wheel. Otherwise, it's just yeah. it, it will be a lake or it will be a river that is pushed off into the house that's then propelled by the water wheel back into the river. But they use that water to generate, you know, power. I have a question now, Scott. Okay. Have you ever fallen inside one? Often. Often. <laughs> I, I'm still waiting for a, uh, a dashing soldier to come in and save me. I throw myself in sometimes, hoping one will come up and just uh, grab me and pull me out. But uh, no, I just end up just getting uh, thrown along the river. <laughs> well, and, and that scene, of course, becomes a, a big plot point because the, you know, the, the soldier dies saving the girl. And then... But as a result, you know, it, it's now you you see that he's you know, he's really a, a Nazi soldier, and and you know up until then, you know, Mike and the guys are doing just fine. They're like kind of walking around the, the English countryside. Hey, it's a bunch of Polish guys. Hey, hey guys. Um, so that that's when the the mission you know gets a lot harder. It's like. Maybe six, maybe I I didn't count. You know, five or six guys with him, and and they gradually you know lose him. Yeah. Starting with that guy at the water wheel. Um, he has eighteen when he lands. Eighteen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. I mean, I want to touch on what Cam said a minute ago about moments and how he thinks he said it has moments in it. I actually felt the complete opposite. I'll get to my thoughts on maybe the film in a second. But I, I shouldn't really be comparing this to Where Eagles Dare, but I just have trouble contrasting the two a little bit in my head. They do have sort of the same formula that Cam says a man on a mission type story. And I I think about Where Eagles Dare. I think about, you know, Broadsword calling Danny Boy. Mm. I think about, you know, Richard Burton and Clinton Eastwood scaling the tower and that joke between them, things like that. The, the bus ride at the end where they're shooting at the back with machine guns. Those moments stick in my head when I think about the film. This didn't really leave me with any particular moments, apart from maybe Donald Pleasance as as Heinrich Himmler. It was a really quite scary performance. I really thought was quite good, actually. I almost wanted to see more of him, even though he's a despicable person he's playing. So, yeah, I, I didn't think it necessarily had those moments, which I think sort of paints my thoughts on the film a little bit. So I suppose I'll get into that. Um, I did like it. I did like it overall. I think it has some really great, I think, great leads. Kane and um, Sutherland are terrific and really do sort of hold your interest. I think something that Bill pointed out earlier, though, is that they just disappear. Yeah. A lot in the film. There's moments where you're just dealing with that eccentric army general or there's moments with the SS back in Germany or, you know, Robert Duvall's character just sort of asking for updates. And 
these what could be like 30 second clips end up becoming five minute distractions which pull you out or like you know the the things that are going on in this quaint english village about you know one lady trying to get revenge against england and things like that and what could have been quite a punchy maybe hour and 45 minute film is is really sort of like rolled out into this i watched a two hour and 15 minute version apparently there's a there's a two hour and 45 minute version out there as well god help me i do not want to watch that version yeah there's multiple cuts there's also one that's just over two hours but i also watched the two hour 15 minute i think that's the popular distributed uh, version of the movie nowadays yeah that's the version i saw as well two two hours and 45 minutes wow <laughs> what what do they have like 10 minutes of uh devlin smoking those russian cigarettes they all walk in real time <laughs> it's, it's yeah. all robert deval the whole time it's just him <laughs> just sitting at the desk <laughs> yeah feasibility studies you know paperwork it takes a while but it is funny because, like, you know, when you say, like, it jumps around a lot. And that's something that, like, the the uh, Great Escape does as well. You know, there's various stories going on within that movie, and they all kind of come together in the end. But it holds your interest each time it hops to each section of the movie, you know, in The Great Escape among the ensemble. And that's something this one struggles with. With Eagle Has Landed, like, you want to be following the Michael Caine story or the Donald Sutherland one, which maybe has some goofier elements we'll talk about in a bit but nonetheless like it's charismatic actors you want to follow them the problem is that we're also bouncing over to Robert Duvall whose character is very underwritten so there's not a lot of genuine interest there the Himmler stuff with Donald Pleasance is great but it feels like you wish this movie was more like where Eagles Dare where you just get to follow Eastwood and Burton on a mission you know you want to just kind of be on the ground with Sutherland and um, Kane working together throughout the movie and you keep getting distracted from that which would be fine if there was like genuine energy in the distractions but there's not really that much well you mentioned uh, uh, the great escape the thing about one reason you can hop around the different stories is each of those uh, stories has something to do with the eventual goal mm-hmm. so you have uh, Charles Bronson's the tunnel guy you have the uh, blind uh, Donald Pleasance uh, and, uh, you know, the counterfeiter, I guess he was. Um, so each, I mean, they're different stories, but they're all part of the same whole, and that allows them to come together. But whereupon in this film, um, you know, there's, they really don't come together. Kind of like once, you know, Michael Caine and the, and the guys are on the mission, you know, you you kind of would want to minimize all the rest of the stuff. I mean, some of it you you'd need, but I I don't know. It's it's and like I said, also like I said a while ago, it's like and then you got Larry Hagman who's kind of like distracting. <laughs> kind of look at me. You've got that, which I, I maybe that is adds a brief moment of comedy. Uh, maybe that's why you could say it's there. But the bit that jumps out to me is is maybe the silliest inclusion is is um, Donald Sutherland's love interest. Um, played by uh, Jenny Agutter, who, you know, the Railway Children, things like that, called the midwife here in the UK. She's still acting, very famous. She was in uh, the MCU. She was one of the council members in S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. Was she? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's also in an a, uh, American Werewolf in London. She's fantastic in that. So, yeah. Well, we'll look out for the Marvel What If episode where she becomes the leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm sure that'll happen down the road. Sure. Yeah, they they got to mind that well somehow. But yeah, that whole like love interest subplot where 
it doesn't really pay off in the end. I mean, he she shoots the guy that sort of finds out before they're found out, I guess, but they wrote that guy in to have that scene. So you don't need to necessarily have that guy to write her in to kill him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about that? The romance is something that just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> like maybe, I don't know. Uh, Bill, I'm curious, you know, when you saw it in 1977, like did that did that romance work? No, I mean, because by that point in the film, I'm mostly kind of wanting to see, like, okay, how how are Michael Caine and his men, you know, getting along uh, toward their toward their mission, and I I don't know, it, it, <laughs> I didn't really remember much about it from from watching it the first time, and and I, it didn't make that much of an impression on me when I rewatched it recently. It's like, you know, he, he's going on this mission to to help the IRA, to try and unify Ireland. It's a, it's a very lofty goal. I understand that. And, you know, eventually he goes to this, he infiltrates this quaint English town in Norfolk. And, you know, he then meets a girl and they start flirting, which, okay, you know, you're a man, she's a woman, that's all fine. And then, like, they meet up on a beach and he gets all distracted. And then she runs off and he, he says to himself, like, Devlin, you've done it again. And what? <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> She's like, I love him. I love him more than anything that's ever been. Yeah, it's it's kind of ridiculous, but also like they keep emphasizing she's 18 years old. To which point I'm going like, wait, how old is Donald Sutherland? So I'm doing the math on that. He was 40 years old when he shot this movie. I, I, it's weird. And like, I I know, you know, age differences is obviously back in, you know, 1945 would have been looked on very differently than it would be now. But it just feels weird. But I think I would buy into it more if it felt more fleshed out versus like, basically they see each other on a street and are like i love you this is the eternal love that can never die like what i mean i mean it's like a tex avery cartoon where like uh, one of their eyes you know bug out a wooga a wooga it's it's a little more subtle than that but not much yeah it's like one kiss and then he's like run girl run <laughs> it's like okay sure i mean He's sent in to be a marsh warden, basically be undercover in this, you know, in this small town. He can't focus on that job for like 15 seconds. <laughs> He's beating a guy up in broad daylight in a church grounds, like in a, in the graveyard. And is this not going to cause suspicion to people? Apparently people were just beating each other up in the streets back in 1940s England. I think of the movie Dirty Dozen, where you have Telly Savalas, who's a member of the team. And like, he's pretty unpredictable. He's kind of the wild card of the team. I wish they'd played up Donald Sutherland more as that because the way he's behaving in this movie, he is not focused like Kane and the rest of his men. So it would actually be really interesting to me if like Donald Sutherland was actually actively causing problems. He felt like more of that wild card character versus like the romantic who we have to let, you know, escape at the end. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Of course, Sutherland had also been in the, the dirty dozen. So he could have, uh, his and his character was pretty uh, eccentric as well, so it's like not like Donald Pleasance couldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you wanted more like um, like a Howling Mad Murdoch A Team style, where he just he's just a bit too crazy for everyone. Well, he looks like he is. He looks actually a lot with the red hair. He looks a lot like Cletus Cassidy, aka Carnage from Spider Man comics. So that kept going through my head because, of course, Cletus Cassidy is also Irish. And I'm like, boy, he looks more like that character than Woody Harrelson does in the new Venom movie. <laughs> like I said, I liked, I liked Sutherland in the film, but yeah, just listening to us talk about this, yeah, he 
they could have perhaps used him better than than they did the the love story definitely seemed forced and it's just kind of being shoehorned in there we got to tick off that box kind of thing because well, he, he proves himself again later because he helps him escape from the church uh, and you know in that sense he's quite useful although he did sort of rise off into the sunset later on in the film i don't really understand the choice there but i want to sort of take us away from the the peculiar love interest and talk about something i actually liked and that was the the film's attempt to get you to root for a Nazi. Mm. And I think it's quite successful. Well, like I said, you had that key early scene, the first scene with Michael Caine. That helps establish, you know, that's like, okay, even though he's a German, he's he's worth your sympathy or at least your empathy. Um, you know, the very key, you know, key creative decision there, you know, because if he was sort of a typical Nazi, you know, like that's, that's really hard to root for, root for. So... And they came up with that backstory. Well, he's German, but he's educated in England, so, and I guess he could speak English without an accent, and etc., etc. It actually reminded me a lot of a film we covered uh, four or five months ago at this point, which is *The Spy in Black* with Comrade Veidt, because you have him playing a German U-boat commander uh, who infiltrates the Orkney Islands and has to, you know, try and take down the British Navy. In the end, he's foiled, but you do root for him during, even though he is a bad guy. And he also saves a young child's life in the film. I was also reminded of the Claude Rains character, Notorious, where, mm. I mean, he's dealing in very dirty stuff, but the movie's making him quite sympathetic as a villain, even, where we understand his emotional journey. And I thought they did a good job with that with Kane. I mean, the movie was definitely bending over backwards to try to write a Nazi hero for this film. And I think took all the steps they possibly could. And it works. I don't know. I, I am curious if they would ever do that now. I don't think they would try to even make that your lead character. But I think in this movie, it genuinely does work. And at the same time, you're okay with him being stopped. Like, none of these guys are portrayed as heroes. So you aren't necessarily feeling too bad when he doesn't succeed in the end. Right, he's an anti-hero in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know what, if you did this today, what you would have is you'd have a different character who would be like, he's like the one guy in, in the, among the Allied forces who thinks this is a possibility, but his superior officers won't listen to him. But he's determined, and he's like, he ends up tracking down the German conspirators trying to get Churchill. That's, I, I, I think that's how they would play it. And also more from the uh, townsfolk as well. You'd probably have a character, yeah. you know, you have the priest in this movie who um, really goes on an emotional journey with these characters. I think that is the type of character you would see much more showcased in a modern version of this story. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about it. I don't think it, it could exist the way it does now. I think in this sort of culture, I, I just don't think you could have a, a sympathetic Nazi. I think audiences now would roll their eyes more so at the Michael Caine being against the Holocaust stuff, especially as a Nazi. I think a lot of people would just roll their eyes and be like, that's being manipulative to try to get us on that side. I think the way it's portrayed in this movie, though, it works. Like in terms of a 1970s adventure film, yeah, didn't really you know bump on me at all. I think the other thing I liked, and I'll, I'll throw out to you guys the things you liked afterwards, was the, and it only really does this at the beginning, and that's the sort of reality of war. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from you know like paperwork and stuff, which is more like the reality of being a spy. You look at the Harry Palmers; they spend like twenty minutes doing paperwork in those films. 
<laughs> stop slagging Harry Palmer, Scott. That's the best part of the movie. <laughs> I will never stop. I will never stop slacking off at Chris File. I'm sorry. So. I actually bought the Blu-ray today at the time of recording this, like 10 minutes before we started recording. They were doing a sale on my uh, Canadian distributor for uh, boutique uh, Blu-rays, and I just bought it online. Very excited. Well, congratulations. Thank you. You can thank burn you. your shelf now. You can burn it to the ground. Um, but less jokingly so. You know, you've got mm. that whole scene that Bill mentioned with the, the Jewish people being carted off into a train. Now, we all know where that train's going. Mm-hmm. Okay, the film doesn't tell you. doesn't need to tell you. We know what happened in history. People who deny it boggle my mind. But it does it, and it, and it, it, it doesn't pull any punches. And that's supposed to give you this sort of hero moment for Michael Caine, which I suppose is built into it. But it doesn't shy away from also saying that, hey, this is what's going to happen to these people. Yeah. And I appreciated the film's attempt at doing that. Well, and I mentioned earlier, I mean, so you have Larry Hagman, who is an otherwise, you know, comedic role, but he eventually gets killed, gets shot in the head. And I wouldn't say there's an excessive amount of blood, but it's like there's definitely blood there. You know, <laughs> you know he's dead. Um, because he's bleeding from the head the way he is, and then he lands on a grenade. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so I mean, so even that comedic scene has you know a thing of you know dollop of violence there. Um, and 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 the so- soldier we referenced earlier dies on the water wheel trying to save the girl. I mean, it's like I wouldn't call it gross but i mean it's like it's you know well, you're seeing a dead body go round and round it looks looks like the guy suffered yeah like it doesn't look yeah. great and you've also got i just remembered as well robert devours killed by a firing squad yeah right at the end of the film and it's not like heroic glorious death in this movie like when people get shot there actually is blood spurts going off and people just go down quick you see that moment with deval you just cited there scott and like he gets shot you just see the body fall to the ground it doesn't play up the sort of the you know, um, fetish, uh, fetishizing the death sequence the way a lot of other movies do. Like, characters get hit and they just go down. There's no glory. There's no, tell my wife I love her kind of moments. You have Kane, you know, going to shoot down Winston Churchill at the end of the movie. He just gets gunned down instantly. It doesn't give you that sort of emotional release of a character dying or anything. It's just like, no, this is war. People get shot and they just drop. And... That was something I actually appreciate about the movie was sort of the finality of just death in this movie, the way that characters just get shot and go down, but also the way that ties into all the action scenes that go on. The movies, there's a lot of shoe leather in this movie. There's a lot of walking to your destination in this film. But when you actually get to that siege in the town where they're taking hostages and the U.S. military is, you know, sending um, men in to engage in a firefight, a lot of that action is really effectively shot. That felt like the moments where John Sturges came alive with staging some of that sort of stuff. The rest of it, he felt a little more on autopilot. But to me, the action was actually a, a real plus for me. I mean, I'll throw it out to you, gents. Uh, Bill first. Anything else that stands out as things you enjoyed about the film? Um, no, I think I covered all my high points. You know, the music by Schifrin. Um, I liked Duval at the beginning. Later you know, it's became kind of a distraction. You know, I liked Sutherland and my, and, and Michael Caine did fine with what he was given. I just kind of wish he'd been given a little more, mm. but, uh, uh, oh, and, and you were talking about the finality of death, you know, the twist at the end. I mean, this is, you know, since this is over 40 
your old movie, I'm, um, I'll give away the ending. It turns out, you know, Churchill had a double, and that's who the, that's who was visiting the area, and that's who got gets killed. And 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 it, I kind of wish they could have done a little more, but then it, you know, at two hours and fifteen, it's probably just as well they didn't because, yeah, you know, I mean, the the kind of lonely life, you know, a double like that would have, like, you know, you're you, you've got a target on your back. Um, because if somebody said, "Oh, no one will know what a hero he was," mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's that that's an interesting concept. Um, in the uh, in the two hour and forty five minute cut, he actually gets back up again after being shot. This is Winston Churchill, <laughs> and just starts going on about, "We will fight them on the beaches," <laughs> and then he dies afterwards, of course. I mean, he's an actor. He gets his curtain call in the uh, extended cut, of course. Yeah, <laughs> rolls around a bit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, all yeah, all, all the all the other officers who are there, you know, allied officers. You know, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he also gets to sing over the end credits. You know, like Mamma Mia or something like that. But <laughs> and, and God save the Queen comes on. He stands up after being shot. You know, hand to chest, and then falls back down again. Of course. I did really like that twist, though, that he does appear be- and get shot. And I was making a note as Kane was skulking around the base. And I wrote down, we know he won't succeed. Like, essentially, dramatically, this isn't particularly interesting or tense. But you get that shock of when he actually does shoot him that that pulled me back into the scene because it was like, oh, I didn't expect this. So it's like the filmmakers knew in advance that audiences might be asking themselves those questions. And undercut it with a really good twist, I thought. I mean, I feel terrible for this performance artist. Um, what kind of assignment is this? <laughs> but nonetheless, very effective. But the, it's got the same job as those people in The Phantom Menace around Queen Amidala. I never understood yeah. why you'd volunteer for that role. But yeah, Michael Caine got Phantom Menaced in this film, which is a, a funny line, I thought. I wrote that down in my notes. <laughs> so was George Fowler like the Kira Knightley of this movie? Yes. Yes, okay. I want to see that. I want to see that alternate <laughs> casting when they remake this film. Okay, yeah. I think Rose Byrne was also one of Amidala's uh, doubles or something, too. Yeah, there was like some like young actors of now mainstream people that were in that film in the background, playing her like yeah. doubles. There was, yeah. I think she got killed like three times in the subsequent prequels. Who can uh, remember? Like, well, I just remember Sand and not liking it very much. That's all that sticks in my mind. Um, there's another character I wanted to highlight is working for me, which was the Joanna Gray character, G- played by Jean Marsh, who is embedded there. She's British and she's aiding the uh, Nazis in their mission. And this was a character that initially we just got just a blip of her. And I thought, OK, well, there you go. But when she comes back at the end, she's holding her own in firefights. We can see that she's also having a bit of an emotional journey. It's just as a character, as someone who has been embedded there for quite a while and didn't realize she'd have to leave. I I really enjoyed this character. It felt like there was some subtlety going on. I could see a whole other movie where I spend a lot more time with her. Yeah, I think she was one of the ones that I'd rather have had more time with her than the uh, Molly Pryor love interest Mm. or the uh, Colonel Clarence E. Pitts character. Like, I, I, I would like to know more about the... The, the dichotomy of, of working for Germany but still actually being English. Instead of half these people that were German, that like Michael Caine's character was German but went to school in England and then went back to Germany in the war. She's British, I think, uh, or I'll use English in this circumstance, and she's still betraying her country. But we don't really dig into why particularly or her thoughts or her feelings for doing so. Yeah, it's like we understand that her mother died in a concentration camp 
um, and was South African. But beyond that, you kind of just get a character underline it for the audience where they just say, oh, so you're doing this for revenge. Okay. Like, I mean, how many movies have been done about revenge, you know, that really dig into the complexities of it? It's the sort of thing I would have liked for this movie, but it's also not really fair to expect the movie to deliver that in a, you know, two hour, 15 minute men on a mission movie. It's in the three hour cut, I'm sure. Probably. (laughs) The cuts are getting longer and longer. There's going to be a five hour cut at some point. That's probably the John Sturgis cut. He didn't want to cut it. It's just the raw footage, basically. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, not wanting to cut things, like, did that first 40 minutes feel bumpy for you two guys in terms of just it's a whole lot of planning and it's a lot that's taking – there's a lot of exposition. It really does take its time before we get to the uh, scenes where you know Sutherland's at the airfield going to be dropped off, which, by the way, just side note – don't set up that you're going to go on a plane, tilt it upside down and drop him, up, drop him out of the plane if you're not going to show it. <laughs> With his hat on, which I never really understood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I really wanted to see that. I want to see that. But just in terms of that 40 minutes of setup, did it phase you guys at all or did it all just play out okay? Duval made it work more or less for me, mm-hmm. um, particularly as he's describing how he was you know, originally quite a skeptic and then like how... We, there's this one scene where he's talking to this one fellow officer where he talks about just how if this hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened, but this wouldn't have happened, but they all happened. And so now all of a sudden this is plausible and like, now I want to do it. Um, so yeah, so he, he made it tolerable. I, mean, I, I could see where upon today they would cut down on the planning scenes but uh like i thought the stuff with him with duval and himmler you know played by uh, pleasance was like really effective that's the sort of stuff that drew me in but when i had like moments where um duval is like examining parachutes i'm like okay okay guys come on <laughs> come on <laughs> right because there's the scene with pleasance and duval gives you an idea of just you know i mean not only were these guys evil they were like nut jobs on on top of that and and Pleasance definitely gets that involved. So you have Duval, who's kind of like the normal, you know, uh, career, you know, German military officer dealing with, you know, Himmler. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's that's another thing I like about that scene. I one of my notes was I felt like it took too long to to get off the ground. If you pardon my pun. Um, but at the same time, I kind of liked the procedural nature of it. Like they had to do this study and they found out this and they talked to people to get permission, blah, blah, blah. Like I almost liked that instead of it just being, I think of like Marvel films and stuff like just, they'll just throw you right in and they're already punching each other with CG in the first five seconds of the film. At least this is like characters talking to each other in a room, being reasonable people uh, and working through a solution. I, I appreciated that, I suppose, but maybe they could have trimmed it down a bit more and maybe made it 30 minutes instead of 40 minutes. It was also interesting uh, seeing, you know, what things were like in the 40s and you know, actually having to deal with all these physical folders. <laughs> Something we don't do now because you're doing all doing it all on computer. It also, I think, is interesting to contrast it with Where Eagles Dare, where that movie's trying to keep the audience in the dark throughout. We don't exactly know what's going on, so we're kind of just flying at the seat of our you know, pants, basically, along with Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. Here, I think the, what they're trying to do, and it's up to the audience to determine whether it works for them or not, but it mostly held my attention, so I can't really you know, pick uh, too many holes with it. But um, 
it wants you to know exactly what the plan is, how everything's going to go according to the plan. And then you watch how the plan doesn't work. So they are trying to do two very different things in terms of these men on a mission movies between the two we've covered on the show. You also know that the plan won't work because history. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. the, it's doomed to fail from the start. It's mostly just about how it fails, which yeah. is something I noted down that like it takes you a very long time to even get the element of why it fails, which is the the water wheel. I think that's the first sort of crack in the in the plan. Um, the, the only thing I I wrote down is something I didn't like that we haven't covered already, uh, although we did briefly talk about it, was that twist ending. Oh, okay. Where you know. Um, Winston Churchill is shot. I both liked and didn't like it. I liked the subversion, much as I like the subversion of having Michael Caine be a Nazi as your quote-unquote anti-hero of the film. He is your protagonist. But um, I just felt like it, it reminded me a lot of uh, No Way Out, something that we've you know we covered quite recently on the podcast, where it just has this twist ending that's kind of just there for shock value. It doesn't really do anything for the story. Uh, it just makes you go, oh, like, oh, oh, wait, no, it's a, it's a body double, okay? Yeah, like it, it doesn't enrich the story for you. The the story is complete by that point. He's already doomed to fail by the time the water wheel happens. Really, I saw Michael Caine shoot um, the uh, Winston Churchill standing. I just kind of thought, uh, yeah, okay, I guess that's just to make people go, oh, for a second, and then leave the cinema talking about it. But from a storytelling perspective, I thought it was more of a cheap ploy. I mean. I think the reason it works for me is because it basically underlines this mission was never going to succeed ever. Yeah. Like it was a failure from the moment these guys parachuted in, they were doomed to possibly die or get captured. This was never, ever going to work. So I feel like you need that moment at the end with the Winston Churchill impersonator to really underline that. Like had it been the real one and he was just, you know, saved by his guards in that moment, you would go, Oh, they were close to pulling that off. But here never had a shot in hell of happening. Well, it's the whole Operation Mince Meat from like World War Two, where they put the dead body on with a fake intel to throw people off. This is all fake intel to throw the Nazis off, which which leads the entire film, and that that's real. Uh, which actually makes me wonder if there ever was an attempt on Churchill's life based on misinformation that we'll never really find out about. I think it's also interesting to consider the placement of this movie within you know history, where it's saying it's the late stage of the war. This is not you know, earlier on, this is when the Nazis know they're failing. So there's like a desperation as well. Right. And it's that I think actually aids the movie where it feels like these guys need to pull this off because it matters to their country versus if you'd said it earlier in the war, then maybe you wouldn't have that sort of desperation. For 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 the, you know, the success, if you want to call it that, that the Nazi team is looking for is to force a negotiated settlement rather than, you know, unconditional, you know, surrender. Um, you know, so, like, we already know we're going to lose. We just want to, like, kind of lose on the best terms possible. And like you said, that's, that's a, a, you know, desperation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that also helps the planning sequence, knowing that. Yeah, I suppose it adds a sort of, um, if you did revisit it, you both watched this twice, I've only watched it the once. Shock horror, guys, unfortunately, this is, this is one of the films I only got a chance to watch once before recording, so uh, that's two now. It is a long one. It is a long one. <laughs> the only one I ever watched twice was Ronan, and I didn't like that one too much either, so maybe uh, if I'd seen it a second time, it might have improved it in my estimation, you never know. Well, you'll, you'll have to check it out and let us uh, and get back to us on that. Or, or not. <laughs> okay, <laughs> or not. Okay. Yeah. okay, fair enough. <laughs> 
Yeah, either that or see uh, uh, the Empress file again. Ah, <laughs> no. I've seen that three times. It's like three times too many. I went past the Albert Hall the other day. I just thought of Cam. I was just like, oh, I can't wait to push him down these stairs repeatedly. Oh, sorry, Cam. It wasn't recording last time. I'll do it one more time. You're not picky about what set of stairs, though. It doesn't really matter if it's Royal Albert Hall or anything. Any. As soon as, as soon as you come over here, like, I'll see you at Heathrow Airport. I'll just push you down an escalator. I'll push you onto the luggage sure. conveyor just to push you. <laughs> You'll be, like, close enough. Yeah. Um, I, there was an interesting line in this movie, though, where Michael Caine says, they're not spies. They don't want to be treated as spies. This is a spy movie podcast, so I, that line really did jump out to me. Do we still regard them as spies? Well, technically, um, you're a spy if you wear an enemy uniform. Mm. So when, the second they donned those Polish uniforms, they were being spies, whether they thought of themselves that way or not. Well, I mean, Bill is the head of the spy command. I think his word is gospel. Yeah. <laughs> and I think when you have a character, say, like, Joanna Gray feels like something of a spy as well. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of spy characters going on. It's just that Michael Caine is a little more stubborn about being labeled as such. I think it's just because he wants to go down if he's caught in his uniform, which is why they're wearing them underneath. If they're ever caught, they want to be wearing their, you know, German uniform and and be treated as a German officer. Okay. Uh, I guess there's some national pride in there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested, just before we sort of start to wrap up, is there any other moments you guys didn't like particularly? Uh, Bill, you first. Uh, I think we covered them all. The, the love story was kind of like not that great. Um, but... Yeah, that... I can't. I can't wait to go roll in on a beach with you, dodging mines. You know that's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that was. She she goes running off the beach afterwards. And I'm just like, watch out for the mines, the mines. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's not like they're not marked. There's that sign yeah. that says, "Watch out for the mines," or Howard's phrase. <laughs> it's in my body, my choice. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought the scenes of. Donald Sutherland's whistling trick were interesting. That feels a little cartoonish, um, but sure. Is that something people can do? I have no idea. I tried to do it to my dog afterwards, and he just stared at me for a while. Yeah. Mm. yeah. There's a good callback there where we see him at the end with his two German shepherds that have become his friends as he's you know looking down at the boat that's been beached. I, I like that little poetic ending of the, the rescue boat that's, that's beached, and he just walks away. But um, the whistling trick Okay, sure. <laughs> I, I didn't understand the gift. I know it was built so they could use it in the end scene to help him escape. I understand why they made it in the script, but I just thought it was, I don't know, just don't have the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, I guess I'll just sort of throw it out to, you know, final thoughts, final, you know, any anything that springs to mind about the film. I have a couple of notes I'll, I'll throw out first. There's a character, uh, Arthur Seymour, who gets his ass handed to him by Donald Sutherland. I, I don't understand that character either. Another one of those weird distractions that this film has. But it was also terribly dubbed. Terribly dubbed. Did okay. anyone catch that? Not really, no. No, um, but the, the one thing that struck me is like, you knew this movie had to be made in England because they had the same shooting sound effects as in James Bond movies of the era. Hmm. Like just every, every time a gun's fires, like oh, there's another there's another Bond sound effect, and I'm sure they were created not specifically for Bond. It's just it's like part of the it's like part of the sound effects library and available in England. But it was kind of funny. I found it funny anyway. Hmm. Walther PPK. Only three men I know use it, and two of them I've killed. 
<laughs> well, it's it's like the same it's like the same sound effect whether it's a forty five Colt, whether it's a rifle. It's just you know it's always like the, I can't I I can't imitate it. It's just you know, but the second I hear it, it's like I think of it you know as a James Bond movie. You know, as, as a man who actively runs away from anyone with firearms, uh, I I'll just take your word for that. I I didn't notice the noise. I have to say. It, well, it didn't sound like real guns. Like you can tell the difference between pew, like a pew, Hollywood pew, pew. movie like this. Yeah, <laughs> it it has that sort of muted gunshot. Like you hear a Michael Mann movie where he's recorded all live guns in something like uh, Heat or um, Public Enemies, and it's like there's a big difference in terms of the sound effects. This feels like that kind of. It is an adventure action movie. It's not trying to be realistic, and I mean it is in some ways, but in terms of its storytelling, it is a little pulpy. And I think that gun sound effect goes uh, well. But uh, sorry, Scott, circling back to that character you referred to, this poor sap, this um, dude who hangs out at the bar, and it, he is there to be ridiculed and made look bad throughout the movie. Like Donald Sullivan just beats the paste out of him in the uh, church graveyard. Um, he, he's shown to be a, a real jerk, actually, when he's like slapping around the love interest, Molly. But like this character is basically just set up to be a patsy for the Donald Sutherland character from moment one. A part of me really enjoyed that because he kind of reminded me of that whole, like, um, the, the good guy air quotes, you know, because he's, he's mm-hmm. chasing this girl around the love interest, uh, you know, unrequited love, and he seems to have been chasing her for years for what she said. And even when, you know, Donald Sutherland sort of walks past her, he's like, how dare you touch my woman? blah blah Badly dubbed, of course. <laughs> and then he gets his ass handed to him. I don't really need, need him to be shot in the back later, but, you know, I think you should probably beat him up a bit. That's a creepy way of doing things. I really thought the fight scene was the comeuppance. I didn't realize this character was going to get gunned <laughs> down by this woman he had a thing for. Weird. What a way to go. What a way to go. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Um, the only other note I had was a bit of car- a bit of background casting that had a few lines. I don't know if you guys noticed Jeff Conaway in the background of a few scenes. Oh, no. Oh, I missed that. He's he's one of the U.S. Army officers. He's the one who uh, has the bazooka and shoots it at the oh. church. He's also then later uh, hit over the head by Michael Caine and his uniform stolen from him when he's on that checkpoint by himself in the car. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Jeff Conaway famously was Kanicki in Greece. He also um, Zach Allen in Babylon 5. Um, the sci-fi show, uh, you know, passed a few years ago now, but uh, yeah, I just noticed that one. We also haven't mentioned Treat Williams shows up. This was an earlier yes. role for him, and he's basically the American soldier we can get on board with. Whereas Larry Hagman's kind of this uh, simpering buffoon. Um, Treat Williams is the guy who follows things by the book and manages to kind of become the heroic party for the Americans here. And it's not like a flashy performance, but you know. He's grounded, he holds the screen, and it's effective. I was also just impressed by, gee, he looks almost exactly like that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's aged very well. So yeah. props to you, Treat Williams. Yeah. I'm just looking at a photo of him now, actually, on IMDb. I, I didn't know who this guy was. Is he? What's he been in? So he was just one of these guys who never quite crossed into fame, but he would get cast in a lot of movies. Um, I remember he was the villain in the Billy Zane fi- uh, film, The Phantom. He was the star of Deep Rising. Those are more from my, you know, 90s teenager going to the movies periods. But um, uh, he was also on the show. And 
you know, forgive me anyone out there who uh, knows better. I think it was Everwood. It was one of those post Dawson's Creek um, series that ran a fair amount of time. I think it was Everwood. He was the star of. He played like the family, you know, patriarch. He was also in a made-for-cable movie uh, about the the late-night television wars in the U.S. And he played, uh, I believe he played Michael Ovitz, the head of uh, CAA, the talent agency. And he was the guy who was kind of spearheading David Letterman's uh, attempt to get a, a you know eleven thirty show. Um, mm-hmm. And he and he, he was he was pretty good at it because he he sort of he he captured that kind of. I, I can imagine a big talent agent head of a big talent agency like that would be hey you know would like would always have a glib line and but you you could tell he was like superficial and and i thought uh i thought he captured that really well mm-hmm. yeah, he's one of those actors you know for a long time dennis quaid like struggled to really cross into being like a movie star and treat williams is kind of the next level down he's a guy who circulated around he starred you know he got top billing in a number of movies but he never he never cracked it the way that you know, even like, you know, Dennis Quaid did, for example, like he just never became a star, but he's just one of those consistently working actors who's going to work probably till the day he dies. And you'll see him in things you remember, and he'll show up in a lot of things you never even see. So, you know, this was his earliest, one of his earlier appearances. And it's just interesting to see that even from the get go, he had that sort of screen presence to really hold a scene. And he he was a nice balance, you know, to the Larry Hagman buffoon officer. Well, I, I kind of, honestly, like, maybe I was kinder to the Hagman character than you guys were, because I, I just really enjoyed this character who's been on a coast-holding assignment forever, and is just bored out of his mind and just desperate for action. Like, I I kind of found some amusement there. It's definitely played cartoonish, but um, his comeuppance was uh, glorious enough that I could kind of just <laughs> write it off as some, uh, you know, comic relief. Well, Hagman played an almost identical role. I mean, it was more of a cameo in the first christopher reeve superman film because Mm. he was you know they were what was it convoy and he was the commanding officer and i don't know i mean it's a very short scene he's not in the movie very much but it's it's a very similar thing you know sort of like the buffoonish bureaucratic you know he's not really a a military guy you'd want to have to (laughs) be in a foxhole yeah um and and it was definitely played for laughs the way much of his uh, role here was he, d- he definitely gave me vibes of and I, I know cam you haven't watched this bill you might have watched the show or read the books at some point but um stannis baratheon from game of thrones um that has his character has exactly the same journey maybe not exactly the same end although not a very nice end either way but yeah he's like left on assignment on an island and sort of just ends up starting fights that he can't win and eventually is, is toppled because of that mm-hmm well, okay, gents, let's bring this eagle in to land. Is the eagle has landed, making the knock list. Now, Cam, as we have a guest, just run us through again what we do here with the knock list. Yes, the knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. So every week, after talking about a movie, we decide whether it belongs on the pantheon of all time great spy films. Some of the films that have made it onto the list, things like um, From Russia with Love, Dr. No and Goldfinger. Um, Three Days of the Condor, Where Eagles Dare made it on, uh, Hannah starring Saoirse Ronan. So it's a fairly eclectic list, but uh, we try to determine which entries belong on a list you could hand someone and they would walk away happy if they watched them all. 
And, and part of your assignment, Bill, is you get a vote in this. You could be the casting vote that puts it on the knock list or stops it from going on. So uh, as you are the guest, Bill, you're up first. Yes or no, is the eagle has landed, landing in the knock list? No, uh, I think it's more of a curiosity than, uh, than a must-see. I mean, it's not a waste of time to see it, but at the same time, you know, I, I sort of understood why I hadn't rushed out to see it after the first time. <laughs> Yeah. In the theater. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. So that's one note. What about you, Cam? Well, I mean, I feel like because Devlin is a Scorpio, as a fellow Scorpio, I have to say yes. But um it's a it's a no for me. It feels like the kind of movie to me that like anyone out there who's watched The Great Escape, watched The Dirty Dozen, watched Where Eagles Dare, and really enjoyed those type of movies, check this one out. It's sort of the B-grade version of those movies. Those ones would all belong on a knock list that fit whatever category they would fit into. But like this one is just, it has its moments. We've talked about a lot of the performances that work for us. It has some really interesting, you know, action sequences. There's stuff here to admire, but just as an overall, you know, 135-minute journey, eh, it's a little saggy in spots. It doesn't feel as inspired as some of those other ones I've named. So it's a no for me, but it's not a, uh, you know, I, I was not um, I was not unhappy sitting through this movie a second time. Well, you know, Cam, you're a Scorpio and I'm a Virgo. So that means really we shouldn't be compatible. But are I'm, you a Virgo? I am a Virgo. Oh my God. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah, we really are uh, incompatible. Yeah. As, uh, Donald Sullivan's character said. Well, we don't plan on getting married anytime soon, guys, so don't worry about it too much. But uh, we, we seem to just about <laughs> get on every week, so I think we're doing okay after a year. Um, but in terms of The Eagle Has Landed, I think the premise is really interesting. I think if it had maybe had another pass at the script or maybe a, a director that was more present, maybe it would have been a better film, a tighter film. I also think Michael Caine is terrific when he's there. Donald Sutherland is mostly terrific when he's there. But there's too many diversions to make it like a must-see spy film. Mm. And so it's a no from me. Uh, I, I think that's a. I think for spy completionists, check it out. I think it's worth seeing if you like your spy films enough to go and watch these some of these funny ones that we come out with from time to time. I mean, this is not an obscure thing like... Yeah, the house on 92nd Street. I think more people saw this film than the house on 92nd Street. But, you know, and I would probably recommend this over the house on 92nd Street, I should say. And this is, this is no way making a disavowed list. This is like a man from uncle situation. I'll, I'll call back to the film we referenced earlier with Bill. Sure. It, it was a fun film. It had its moments. It also had its weird bits I didn't like too much. And so it didn't make the knock list for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. That's three no's, and as such, the eagle is not landing on the Nurnock list, and therefore the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Before we discuss what we're doing next week, Bill, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, we, we will get you on for a, a different film down the road as well. We have a master list of a ton of spy films, so we're looking to complete the whole set of spy films eventually so we'll have to get you on for maybe something a bit different now maybe a, a modern one or a comedy down the road whatever um i'd be up i'd be up for it however uh however it goes any any particular favorite spy films that you, you hold near and dear you know one that i actually have only seen part of i don't know have you done the venetian affair no, no not yet no um venetian affair based on the novel by helen McInnes. Uh, came out in 67 
starred Robert Vaughn. He filmed it in between seasons of The Man from Uncle, but it's also got Boris Karloff, it's got Luciana Paluzzi, it's got Elkie Summer. Mm. Um, it's got music by Lalo Schifrin again. Um, like I said, for some reason, I've never sat down to watch the whole thing, um, but that might be worth uh, consideration. Vaughn is, I know he plays an alcoholic. He, he's not Napoleon Solo in this film. Um, it's funny because uh, some people mistakenly think it has something to do with The Man from Uncle because each episode was called The Blank Affair. So they think, oh, that must be The Man from Uncle. No, it's, right. it, that's a total coincidence uh, in this case. I think uh, we can probably pretty much guarantee you that one. I don't think anyone's asked for the Venetian affair. So, hey, I'm down for that. Yeah, we get asked like, hey, can I be on for Casino Royale? And I'm like, mm, there's a bit of a cue for that one. But uh, yeah, if you're, <laughs> if you're putting your hands up for Venetian affair, I think it's safe to say it might just be yours. Like I said, just because I haven't seen it all the way through, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of like to check it out because it's one of those projects. Uh, I, I remember seeing this promotional film by MGM uh, from 64. Hey, it's our 40th anniversary. And then besides movies that were like immediately in the queue, hey, we bought the rights of these books. And they showed, you know, uh, the cover of The Venetian Affair. So, and Helen McInnes was a big name at the time. Um, so it's something, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm curious about it. So it, and it might make for a decent discussion. Hmm. And of course, listeners, check out the Spy Command. Yeah, there, obviously the website's there. We'll put a link to the website in the show notes. But Bill's always over on Twitter. He's always sharing the latest spy news way before we ever share anything like that. So uh, Bill is your source <laughs> for uh, all things spy, I would say. Well, thanks very much. And uh, what is the? where can people find you on sort of Twitter and Instagram and such? Uh, Twitter is at the Spy Command. Um, you know, I have an Instagram account, but I've struggle with how to use it so it's mm -hmm. like something i've never really utilized so do we, so do we. yeah <laughs> and there's also a spy command page on facebook yeah we, we do pop up on there from time to time and you're always very gracious enough not to throw us off immediately afterwards so i appreciate that <laughs> but sure thing but again bill thank you for joining us thank you well can what are we talking about next week we are Jumping back only a you know small number of years to tackle 1973's Day of the Jackal. Usually we tackle a franchise here, but we are doing something a little different where we're going to do an original and follow up with a remake later on down the road. So we're going to start with Day of the Jackal and you know take on the uh, 1997 Bruce Willis Jackal in a handful you know a couple months from now. So we're going to start right here. Looking forward to this one. I've never seen it, starring Edward Fox. And uh, has a certain amount of prestige around it. Didn't Edward Fox play M in Never to Never Again? Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. That's why I know the name. Okay, I'm looking forward to this one. I also have never seen it. Yeah, so this is, I think, going to be a really cool one to tackle. I was just going to say, I, I have seen it, and uh, Edward Fox is definitely worth watching. So is Michael Lonsdale. So I'll just mm. leave it at that. Bill did a better job setting up than we did, so uh, that's perfect. <laughs> so your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch the day of the Jackal and join us next week. We are, of course, a proud member of Quite the Thing Media and Podbreed Podcast Networks. And don't forget to check out the knock list on letterbox.com slash spyhards, where you can find the films that made it, the films that didn't, and the films that got disavowed. And unfortunately, there's been a few of them. Uh, don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, I haven't sucked my thumb in years. 
I wonder if you'd be kind enough to do it for me.